Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Jean-Luc Guerry is a man down his luck. A middling journalist, gambling addict, alcoholic, yet when news of his brother's murder in Saigon reach him in France, Gary drops everything and travels to French Vietnam to investigate. Gary is not the kind of main character you'd think would star in a thick novel like Beat Scott's Too Far From Antique, published by Penguin Southeast Asia, something that many other characters in Beat's novel note on several occasions. Yet Bede drives Gary through a murky plot of corruption and crime in a tense Saigon near the end of the French colonial period. Bede Scott is a professor of literature in the School of Humanities at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. He has been teaching there since 2006, after completing his PhD at the University of Cambridge. Scott is also the author of On Lightness in Literature and Effects Disorders, Emotion, Colonial, and Postcolonial Literature. Today, Bede and I talk about his novel, The Setting of Colonial Era Vietnam, and how Bede's character and plot deconstruct the standard tropes of the detective novel. So, Bede, thank you for joining us on the Asian Review of uh, Books podcast today. I wonder if you might start our conversation by kind of setting the scene for us. You know, Too Far From Antibes is set in Vietnam in the early 50s, uh, right after, well, soon after the war, still a French colony. I wonder if you might kind of describe what Vietnam is like uh, at the time your book is set. Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, it was a very turbulent time in Vietnamese history, of course. Uh, It was more or less halfway through the first Indochina War, which began uh, in 1946 at the end of the Second World War and would only finish in 1954. So it was really the the, the midpoint of the war. Uh, The French were struggling. they had established Saigon as their, their capital or the capital of the state of Vietnam, uh, which was a state cr- uh, created by the French in, in 1949 um, with the Emperor Bao Dai as the it's a, a kind of nominal head of state, um, really representing French interests. Um, 
So it, it was a turbulent time, given the fact that the, the, the war was, well, that the French were, were struggling. Um, they were fighting, of course, with the, the Viet Minh, uh, whose capital was located in, in Hanoi in the north. Um, so there was the, the war to contend with. Uh, the city itself was full of, of Viet Minh operatives, um, so insurgents of one kind or another, um, who were attempting to, to overthrow the, the French regime and the, the state of Vietnam. Um, and then, of course, in Sholon, which was the, the Chinese quarter of Saigon, you had a kind of it was it was really run by a, a, a paramilitary criminal organization by the name of the of the Bin Su Yen. Um, so you had all of these different kind of some some affiliated some competing forces operating in the city at the same time. Uh, the French colonial administration, the state of Vietnam, uh, and its representatives, the Viet Minh operatives. Uh, and the Bin Su Yen and other criminal syndicates. So it was a, a particularly turbulent time in, in Vietnamese history, but for that reason, uh, particularly interesting. Yeah, you know, and and in the book, everyone warns um, the main the main character Jean Jean Luc Guerry. It's like Saigon is very dangerous. You shouldn't be here. Murders are uh, not uncommon. Um, I guess if you, if you kind of share a bit more about about what actually kind of life on the ground in Saigon was like at the time. Yeah, well, I think the fact that you were that the, there was so many people with different motivations, different objectives, uh, different ideologies, um, all all trying to kind of impose their 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 um, ideals on on one another, uh, their objectives on one another. Uh, it meant that it was a time when it was difficult to be sure of, of other people and, and, and their ultimate uh, motives. Um, and uh, I suppose a time when there was a lot of violence on a, on a daily basis. Um, and so you were aware, I suppose, that your life was endangered um, on, a, on a daily basis. And that was just a consequence of living in Saigon at that particular point in time. So, you know, kind of your your main character, Jean Luguri, you know, he's not your standard protagonist in uh in the in a detective novel like this. You know, he has a lot of vices, he's not very brave, um, he gambles all the time. Um, all the other characters kind of make note that he is a bit of a a bit of a sad sack, as you will. Um but kind of why why write your main character in this way? Well, I was I was really influenced by the the novels of Eric Ambler, the English writer. Uh, the book itself is is, is dedicated to Ambler, um, and particularly influenced by the novels he wrote in the late nineteen thirties, a series of kind of classic thrillers, which at the time were, were quite kind of revolutionary uh, in the sense that they all featured protagonists who were ordinary people, uh, and previously there had been. Uh, the, the protagonists of such novels had always been heroic, uh, certainly competent. Uh, there was a sense of, of, of professionalism. Uh, but with Eric Ambler, suddenly you have amateurs out of their depth. Uh, you have everyman types uh, who are obliged to contend with, with very powerful, often, often uh, inscrutable forces that are ultimately beyond their control. 
Uh, and that's become quite a common trope uh, in, in, in thrillers these days. Uh, at the time, as I say, it was, it was revolutionary. So I was kind of working within that tradition, uh, and I wanted to make uh, my protagonist a kind of uh, an amateur in, in, in the mold of, of Eric Ambler. You know, and and um, you talk about kind of other detective novels. You know, one of the your book make reference to another spy novel, I think called. Um, I'm going to get the French completely wrong. Uh, tu parles d'une d'un ingénue. Um, well, first of all, is that is that a real book? And I guess it, if it's a real book, what happens in it, and why include it as a parallel? Yeah, well, I, it, it's a novel. I mean, it is a real book. It's the first in the OSS 117 series, written by Jean Bruce, um, uh, a French thriller writer who would who was extremely prolific um, and produced a great number of books in in that series. Uh, Tupal de Nonchenu was the first in the series. Uh, it's a novel about arms trafficking. It hasn't actually been published in, in English. I read it with some difficulty in, in the French. Uh, so I can't give you a detailed synopsis. It has to be said, but it, it really deals with, with arms trafficking. And, and it's full of the, the, the kind of these, the, the, the kinds of cliches that you associate with, with thrillers um, but the novel itself doesn't carry any real significance within the, the, uh, my book. It's really it functions as a kind of plot device, as, as a as a tangible clue. Um, but more generally, I suppose it contributes to the novel's kind of intertextual quality. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I invoke a number of, of different. Uh, Kind of literary precursors, the work of Georges Simenon, uh, being a particular favourite of, of Jean-Luc Guerry's, the, the, the protagonist of the novel, um, and then I, I evoke the, the tradition of Eric Ambler and Graham Greene and so forth indirectly. Um, yeah, I was interested to, to kind of engage with this novel, um, really just to kind of reinforce that sense of intertextuality. Um, the novels themselves, the OSS one one seven novels, are not highly recommended, as I mean, as I can tell. Um, but certainly, the the modern incarnation of OSS one one seven in the the movies. I'm not sure if you've seen those. Um, the the kind of the contemporary movie starring uh, Jean Dujardin uh, kind of transformed the hero into a comedic or absurd figure. Uh, and those would have been more of an influence on me than the novels themselves, the original novels. I'd actually like to be asked a question about about your approach to to the genre, kind of given we've we've talked about, um, you know, other works, other works that you've tried to refer to, um, draw parallels to. You know, it seems like Too Far from Antibes has a an interesting relationship with the, the detective genre, the spy genre. Um, you know, it does it does follow its tropes to some extent, um, but also, of course, it, it it pokes fun at them. It pokes fun at the tropes, um, and all the characters seem to be quite self aware too, in the sense that <laughs> the number of times someone tells Jean Luc, "This is not like your detective novels. Um, you, this is very different." Uh, while, of course, the story continues to follow along with its tropes, I wonder, kind of, kind of what. What drove you to kind of tackle the genre um, in this in this way? 
ultimately, it was, I suppose, an enthusiasm um, for the genre, um, and again, particular uh, in particular, the work of, of Eric Ambler. So I really began to write um, with that in mind. I mean, the novel was intended as a pastiche of, of Ambler's work, uh, and to some extent of, 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 of uh, uh, the novels that Graham Greene referred to as his entertainments, so thrillers, but a kind of somewhat uh, kind of light-hearted thrillers, um, where there might be a, a, where the hero maybe maybe fallible um, and and not particularly heroic. So I was interested in, in working in that particular tradition. Um, and I mean, it's it's a fine line to. To to, to to balance because you do need to, I mean, if you're too self-aware, too self-conscious, too metafictional, then I think it it it, it uh, destroys the suspension of disbelief and it can become somewhat arch, somewhat somewhat knowing. So there has to be a basic enthusiasm for the for the conventions of the genre, I think. Um, but at the same time, I, I think there's a degree of uh, self-knowledge, um, I think it can add a, an additional layer of complexity to the narrative. Um, I also wanted my protagonist to see the world through the lens of literature. Um, so he's an enthusiast as well, uh, an enthusiastic reader of crime fiction, in particular the work of Georges Simenon. Um, and so it was important to me that he should have that that, that, that kind of mentality, uh, what Edward Said calls a textual attitude, uh, like Don Quixote or, or Madame Bovary, uh, to see the world through the lens of, of literature, um, and at times to to kind of uh, to to be obliged to confront the, that disparity between literature and, and life, between representation and and reality. Um, and this is something that he's obliged to confront uh, on more than one occasion over the course of the novel. So I, I wanted to drill down into one kind of historical detail in your book that I found that I found fascinating, just from what it implies about, in some ways, about about the economics of Vietnam. So, and you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to try and spoil too much about the book, but one of the crimes that kind of underpins. Um, the story is uh, this illegal trade in 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 piastres, trying to take advantage of the difference in exchange rates within Vietnam and within France. I wonder if you could actually talk us through what this illegal trade was and how and whether or not it was widespread in Vietnam at the time. Yeah, well, the 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 illegal trade in piastres actually became something of a scandal uh, in the nineteen fifties. Um, in what I mean, originally it was uh, intended to to stimulate the economy in, in Indochina uh, and to encourage trade with Indochina, uh, to encourage investment in the colony. So I think it was 1945 when the the French government decided to set the official rate of exchange for the piaster, uh, the Indochinese piaster at at 17 francs in France. So uh, one one piastre would, would, could be exchanged for 17 francs. And this was actually twice the its actual value at the time. 
So piastres worth eight and a half francs in Saigon uh, could be exchanged for 17 francs in, in Paris. So they really doubled in value uh, as a consequence of this, uh, this policy. Um, and of course, it encouraged, immediately encouraged um, a, a, a lot of, uh, um, I suppose, kind of lightweight criminality, let's say, um, in that if you could arrange to have piastres remitted to France, then obviously you would profit as a consequence. Um, and there were several ways in which this could be done, uh, obviously, legitimately to begin with, but illegitimately, uh, you could pay someone to, to remit piastres on your behalf, uh, and then you would profit from this, this arrangement. Uh, there was a lot of corruption at the time, so officials at the exchange office in Saigon could be could be bribed um, to, to, to facilitate the remittance of piastres. Uh, and finally, you could import useless or obsolete merchandise from France and, and pay for it using Indo-Chinese piastres. Uh, and this last practice was particularly common at the time. Um, so I, I mentioned one example in the book where a Paris publisher uh, created a subsidiary in Saigon to whom it sold all of its remaindered titles. So the titles that were that were not selling well in, in Paris were, were sold uh, to the subsidiary in Saigon. And once the books arrived in Saigon, they were immediately pulped. So they, again, carried no value themselves. But the publisher was able to double its money by exchanging the piastres it had received in payment at the official rate of exchange in Paris. So there was all of this. I mean, it's a kind of crime, but but obviously these, there were these kind of fraudulent practices that were very commonplace at, at the time. Um, and even certain political parties from metropolitan France were engaged in, in this particular trade uh, and profiting from it. Um, so it's certainly a part of the, the plot in the novel, but given it, the fact that it was a widespread practice at the time, given the fact that it's really a... Um, not a particularly serious crime. I, I, I had to kind of move beyond that, in that that's not the kind of the ultimate crime that's, that's uncovered. But it was such an interesting kind of dynamic, an interesting arrangement that I did want to make it a part of the plot. Um, yeah, and, and as I say, it carries some kind of value within the novel. It functions as a kind of a part of the. the um, the structure of the novel and its, its plotting, but it also, I think, carries some historical value. It's, it's an interesting, um, really an interesting dynamic at the time. And, you know, is there is is there something about, you know, French Vietnam that makes it such an interesting setting for these kinds of stories? You know, different from British colonies in the region, American colonies in the region, or just other kind of locations in Southeast Asia. Is there something about French Vietnam that makes it so compelling as a setting for a story like this? Yeah, I mean, I was. it appealed to me for a number of reasons. Firstly, because of the fact that you had these various kind of affiliated forces operating at the same time within the city. So that kind of complexity uh, I found appealing. You know, the fact that you had the Viet Minh, 
independence UN, uh, you had these representatives of the state of Vietnam and the, the French colonial administration itself. That, that complexity, that social dynamic, I found interesting. Uh, it's also it was also a transitional period in Saigon in Vietnamese history, um, and these kind of transitional phases are also I think particularly interesting. Um, and so that was part of what what motivated me to set the the, the novel in Saigon. Also, again, it's a part I guess uh, partly a consequence of my of the intertextuality. Uh, that, that I mentioned earlier, in the fact that it's a, one of those kind of classic settings for a novel of this kind. It's one of those cities that's that was full of spies, uh, revolutionaries, soldiers, gangsters, and so on. Um, like Shanghai in the 1930s, I suppose, or Cairo in the 1940s. Um, so that was appealing as well, I think, uh, that that... The, the fact that it did it corresponded or with with some of these earlier thrillers that, that I was particularly uh, inspired by. You know, speaking I guess speaking of the history, I just wanted to ask a quick question about kind of what your what your historical research process was like. You know, I think you you've clear clearly there are these are all based off of real historical practices, real historical events. And I kind of want to ask a quick question about. Um, your research process? Yeah, well, I, I basically, I read whatever I could um, as much as possible. Um, I read around the subject. I mean, a vast amount of scholarship has been conducted on the subject of, of the Vietnam War, the second Indochina War, uh, which the Vietnamese, of course, refer to as the American War. Um, less research has been conducted certainly in English, on the subject of the first Indochina War, but there are, there are some useful sources out there. Um, in particular, uh, a book by an academic, an American academic, by the name of Alfred W. McCoy, uh, a book entitled The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the, the Global Drug Trade. That was very useful for me. Uh, it's a very interesting book. Uh, and he he kind of addresses this period of Vietnamese history in some detail, uh, and that's again part of the um, that's that's the additional layer of kind of criminality that I wanted to add to the novel beyond the the piasta trade, uh, the trade in opium, which was being conducted at the time, although opium itself had been outlawed, I think in 1946. Um, so that was a particularly useful source. Uh, I did. I also went to Saigon, to Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, it was important to, to kind of travel, to, to walk around the city, to get some sense of the place. Um, and then I suppose also fiction, reading as much fiction as I could that was set at the time uh, in Saigon. For example, the I mean Graham Greene's Quiet American would have to be the classic text on the subject. Um, so it was useful to look at some of the, the fiction as well, bit kind of varying degrees of quality, but always with some carrying some historical value. Uh, so that helped a great deal as well. You know, you, 
you mentioned that that you went to Ho Chi Minh City, and that that's a great segue, I think, to my last question, which is, you know, if you were looking for traces of of colonial era Vietnam, um, whether in uh, whether in Ho Chi Minh City or the city of Vung, Vung Tau, which um, I think was called Cap Saint Jacques in in colonial times, can you still see traces of colonial Vietnam in either of these locations today? Yeah, I mean, to an extent. Uh, I, I'd have to say there are traces uh, still still visible, uh, but but not much uh, aside from the architecture, aside from the the urban planning. Uh, the colonial influence isn't particularly obvious. Uh, you do have to look quite hard at times to kind of to to identify that layer of that historical layer, that sedimentation of the, the colonial period, um, what's been left behind. Um, and that's often the case in, 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 in colonial cities, whether it's, it's Cairo, Alexandria, Bombay or Mumbai, Calcutta, these great colonial cities. Um, I mean, so much time has passed. Often the, 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 you, you do have to look quite hard before you can find evidence of the, the, the colonial period. Um, one key factor in this regard is the fact that Vietnam wasn't really a settler colony. Um, and for that matter, nor was Egypt, nor was India. Uh, the French arrived in Vietnam in, in 1885, and they left in 1954. So they were there for, well, 70 years. Um, and in, in the general scheme of things, that's not a particularly long time. So the colonial period is really just one layer of, of many uh, in Vietnam's history. Um, so, yes, there's evidence that, that emerges uh, from time to time, you know, certainly in the architecture, uh, the urban planning traces have been left on the city. Um, but, but so much has gone on since. And so much went on previously that I, I really would, wouldn't describe these as colonial cities so much these days. Um, but that that the, the the elusive nature of the the, the colonial uh, of these these traces of the colonial past. I mean, it does give you. It makes the this, the cities somewhat evocative. Um, although you do have to, to exercise your imagination, I think, in order to to really um, to to get a very strong sense of that aspect of, of, of the past. So I think with that, that ends our interview with Bede Scott, author of Too Far from Antibes. Bede, I actually have a couple final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Uh, well, it's published by Penguin Random House, um, Southeast Asia, uh, the novel. So it's available certainly online in all the usual places. Uh, it should be available in bookstores throughout the region. Um, and as far as the next project is concerned, uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I, I mean, I work as an academic. I teach at a university in Singapore. So I, I, I'm kind of oscillating back and forth between critical works and, and fiction. Um, 
So I think at this point I should probably uh, produce some some uh, something more in in line with my my academic research. But I think it, it, at some point further down the line I'll certainly be be writing another novel. Um, I just need to wait for the the, the the kind of to, to 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 generate the kind of enthusiasm I felt before I began this this novel too far from Antibes. Well, I mean, I, I I look forward to reading your next one um, when the time comes. I greatly enjoyed reading uh, too far from Antibes. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R I Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsiaReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The ARB podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us, continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, joins my interview with Felipe Fernandez Ernesto on Straits, Beyond the Myth of Magellan. But before then, Bede, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much, Nicholas. It was a pleasure.